For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side or put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if then, if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, and they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Akron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Akron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eliezer, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ our Lord, when King Charles of Great Britain and also of Canada was crowned when he ascended to his throne, then there was much rejoicing, there was much celebration in many parts of the world. But there was also some protests. There were also people that were very much against what was happening. In places in Great Britain, there were these uh, protest marches, parades through various cities with these people holding signs up that said things like, Not my king. Not my king. And it's an interesting 
aspect of modern culture to enter into and to think about, about the procession of a king to a throne in a republic, in a democratic society. Why in the world do we need a king? What place does a king hold or a monarchy hold in a society such as ours? It's an interesting question to work through and to think about. But the people who, who were protesting weren't approaching this from a perspective of politics or the like. There was a certain amount of, of anger and, and frustration and resentment for not just the office of king and of the monarch, but of the very uh, oppression and cruelty that this house represents and all the rest. There were stories about how terrible the, the house of Windsor is and how terrible the, the kings and the queens of England have been and Great Britain have been. And the colonialism and the oppression and all of these watchwords and catchphrases of our day were trotted out by those who are convinced that a king is a terrible thing to have. And I suppose, yes, if if what you want in this life is uh, acknowledgement of your superiority, if you live in a world where you believe the individual is the highest good, where the individual is the most important person, really that I'm the most important person in all of life, and you are and everyone else is, and that everything should serve the purpose of the individual, then things like class and things like economic disparity and things like political power are indeed troubling. There are many people in our world today that would prefer to have a situation where no one has authority over them, where no one can tell them what to do. Indeed, we all struggle with that to some degree. We don't like it when dad and mom tell us it's time to go to bed. We don't like it when a manager on a job tells us what we're supposed to do, even though we know full well what we need to do. We, we don't like the idea of submitting to authority over us. And if that's our problem, if that's our natural human instinct, then any kind of acknowledgement of authority, certainly that of an outdated, archaic monarchy like that of England, is troubling, is problematic. We say to ourselves, why in the world do we have a king? But what if a king can do something for us that no one else can? Not King Charles, of course. Not King Charles. We're, we're in the book of 1 Samuel. We're in a book about a king. This is a book about how Israel, how the church, how we were given a king. And just like those people who paraded on the day of King Charles' ascension to the throne, saying, not my king, there are even in the church people who do the same thing about Jesus Christ. Not my king. That is, that they do not submit to Him. They do not acknowledge Him. They don't bend the knee in service to Him. They don't give their lives over to Him. And that ought to concern all of us. That ought to challenge all of us. But that also ought to force all of us to ask the question, what is the role of the King? Why, why do we have a King? Why is it so important that we have a King? To some degree, that's what this interlude in the book of 1 Samuel is about. Remember how in the chapters 4, 5, and 6, we depart for a moment from Samuel. To this point, we've heard about Samuel and his need, his ministry, and we're going to pick it up again in chapter 7 at verse 3. We're going to hear the name Samuel again after all of those 20 years of silence. But from chapters 4, 5, and 6, there's no mention of Samuel at all. This is just about God doing something with respect to His people, showing His people something of their need. 
And that comes to the end here in chapter 6 where the Philistines return the ark of God having suffered so significantly for seven months under the wrath of God. We shouldn't miss that. As it says at the beginning of our text, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners saying, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? They, they want desperately to get rid of this thing. Overwhelmed by the Lord's wrath, they now take steps to rid themselves of God's presence among them. These seven months have broken these people. Seven months ago, they came home rejoicing. They came home carrying this box from the Israelites, this symbol of their deity, rejoicing. They had put it in Dagon's temple. And now they were broken. They were weeping. They were under the weight of His judgment. They were conquered by His hand. And they had learned the fear of the Lord because of their rebellion. It wasn't a fear that drove them to joy as it ought to drive us to joy. It was a fear that drove them to despair as is the case when we don't hear the Gospel, when we don't know the good news of salvation. All they knew was that God was angry with them. All they knew was that God was punishing them and they wanted to get rid of this God and be as far from Him as possible. At all costs, they wanted to be rid of this God. They now know who the Lord is and they know that He defeats them and they know that all who oppose them suffer or oppose Him suffer. They reference the Egyptians. Remember the Egyptians? Why should we be like them? Get rid of this God before He rids Himself of you. And so they call their priests and diviners, the people that are in charge of such spiritual things, who know how to relate to gods, who know how to work with these gods to make them happy. What should we do? How do we make this God happy with us? And the priests and diviners of the Philistines, they know a thing or two. There's still an echo of common grace, you might say, of natural theology. There's still a sense in their hearts and minds that Well, if you're going to make an angry God happy, there needs to be offerings, burnt offerings. There needs to be a gift, a tribute to this God, acknowledging that you are weak and He is strong. And so they advise their their leaders, their lords, about how to make a burnt offering, how to bring tribute to the Lord, these tumors, these mice. And they hedge their bets, these spiritual leaders. They tell them to give cows, unyoked cows who have just had calves, And use them to deliver the ark back to Israel because, of course, if the cows turn around, which is what you would expect in that situation, they wouldn't want to leave their calves behind. They certainly wouldn't want to be yoked. And they wouldn't be happy about it. They wouldn't be able to live in that circumstance or serve in that circumstance. So they would naturally kick against it. They would naturally turn around and come back. If, therefore, they went to Israel, it was a sign that God was sovereign in that moment, that they were also under God's control and power. And so the leaders of the Philistines do all of this, and it happens exactly as it's been described. The cows lowing, wanting to be with their calves, but not able to resist the power of God, walk along the highway to Beth Shemesh. Because God is God. Because he's not like Dagon. He's not like Baal. He's not like the gods of the nations. He is the Lord. He is the King of kings. He is the ruler of heaven and earth for he's made it. He is the one 
who controls all of life by His power. And He cannot be escaped. He cannot be put off. He cannot be denied. Oh, you can deny Him. That is to be true. You can reject Him undoubtedly. But you cannot be rid of Him. For He is God. That's what we need to be impressed by this morning as we consider these words, as we reflect on what this means for us today. We need to be impressed by just how great and glorious our God, the God we've come to worship today, truly is. To appreciate that, just for a moment, take the position of those people in Beth Shemesh as they're gathering the wheat harvest. And then eventually they begin to hear these lowing cows and maybe they look up and they see this cart coming towards them with no rider in it, the Ark of the Covenant on its back. And there stand the five lords of the Philistines undoubtedly with their grand retinue, their armies, their soldiers, their guards, standing watching as this cart comes into their land. What a strange scene it must have been for these farmers. Lowing cattle longing for their calves but unable to defy the living God, the king of the Philistines, kings of the Philistines following in tow, wealthy objects of gold, mice and tumors. What's that all about? What does that even mean? The last that these people had heard, the ark of God had gone into exile. The Lord had been captured. The people had been defeated. The Philistines had won. And their oppression had been made all the worse. This enemy now ruled over them unrestrained. No one existed to protect them. No one was there to defeat their enemies for them. And now wonderfully, beyond all expectation and hope, beyond anything that they had done, Here comes God back to them. He returns with His enemies in tow, humbled. He has not used a single Israelite to accomplish this defeat of a nation. He hasn't used a single sword, spear, or arrow. No war cry has gone up. But God has defeated the Philistines powerfully. Here stand the lords of the Philistines worshiping the God of Israel, glad to be rid of Him as the people of Beth Shemesh stand with their mouths open, wondering what's going on. Stunned by this revelation of their God who is so great and glorious, He needs not a single Israelite to defeat His enemies but is the living God who reigns and rules and before whom all nations one day will bow. That's what we need to be impressed with. That's what we need to be amazed by today. Because we are not always amazed by this. We don't always come to worship because this is true. We do not always live our lives in this coming week, in the past week, in light of this reality. The truth is, we don't always accept this truth. And the evidence of that is in so much of our uncertainty. So much of our fear. For our fear in the cultural context we're in. For our fear of the direction of our nation, of our society. For the fear that the future is for our children. We have a fear for our children and our grandchildren. How, we say, how will they be able to stand in this difficult day? We have a fear in our hearts of what following the Lord means. If we truly followed the Lord, would we still have friends? Would we still have jobs? Would we still have 
have blessing in our lives. Some of us are struggling in our friendships, in our friend group. Our friends are doing silly, foolish, immoral things and we want to say no, but we're afraid because what will that mean if no one is, if everybody gets angry with us, if everybody says don't hang out with that one, she's just a holy roller. He's just a pious Christian. Indeed, our fear expresses itself in our unwillingness and inability to witness to the Lord when we speak to neighbors, co-workers, and friends and we don't speak to them of the Gospel. We don't want to offend them. We're afraid. We don't want to anger them. But what if all of that fear is a failure to know just what this text presents to us, the greatness and the glory of our God who is King of kings and Lord of lords? For all men everywhere, you understand, have only ever been able to conceive of a God or gods as tribal and local. Oh, they say their gods are sovereign, but they never are. What happens to a people when they stop believing in Zeus? What happens to Zeus when people stop believing in Him? The people carry on, but the God ceases to exist. Who defeats other gods? Who destroys other deities? In the end, the history of this world is littered with the graves of gods that were once worshipped. But they are not defeated by armies. They are not defeated in any meaningful way. They are simply forgotten and cast into the ash heap of history. But not our God. For the God of whom we read in this chapter so many thousands of years ago is the same God we're worshiping today, is the same God that will be worshiped to the end of time, is the God who is worshiped throughout this world today, and is the God who holds this world in the palm of his hand. And what if then, what if we come to understand and be amazed? What if like the people of Beth Shemesh, we stand in awe of this God because we suddenly realize our God is not like the gods of the nations. He's not a small God. He is a glorious God. What if Jesus does, as the Word says, have all authority over heaven and earth? What if our enemies, those we fear, are too much for us to overcome, but are nothing for the King of kings and Lord of lords? What if the lesson we need to fear in the context of a culture that says to us, you're defeated, why can't you learn that lesson? Is that we have nothing to fear because in Christ we are more than conquerors. Not that God will go out and do what He did for us as He did for the Philistines, Go into some temple and destroy the people and bring the nation bowing before us. That's too small. That's too provincial. That's too self-centered. We live in a day, we live in the time and in the era of Christ's death and resurrection, of His ascension and reign. He sits at the right hand of God. And we live under His daily rule, even as the church's growth and development, even as the testimony of His faithfulness to each succeeding generation, even as the fact that the church on this earth has always had representatives, has never been defeated, testifies. How would your day then, how would your perspective, how would your coming week, how would your passion and your focus, how would the priorities of your life change If today you took seriously that every human being, whether they realize it or not, 
is under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ and will either worship and adore Him or suffer under the cruelty of His fist. What if Jesus truly does determine the outcome of every single human, of every one of us here today, the outcome of our lives? Wouldn't that first make some of us tremble who have in this day or in this week lived in rebellion to Him. Should we not come into His presence then and tremble and cry out for mercy and say, Lord, again, I have forgotten You. Again, Lord, I have treated You like a God of the nations, a small God, a God who doesn't see me when I'm off campus, when I'm off the reserve, when I'm in a place that the world is, when I'm with the world where their gods rule, then I don't think You can see me, Lord. But He can And shouldn't we then bow before Him today and cry out for mercy and say, Jesus, I have treated You like a small king, but I know now that You are the great and glorious King. Some of us need to humble our hearts before the King and say, Lord, I have treated You poorly. But those of us who acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior ought to to respond with great confidence and joy today. Indeed, our worship of God in this service and in this day should be filled with great encouragement and wonder. For we are not fools who worship this God. Being a Christian may seem, extre- ex- seem, may seem increasingly strange to people around us. How can you be so narrow-minded? How can you be so backward? How can you be so behind the times? But we are right to worship Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. Living for Him is the greatest act of wisdom you can have. Just look at our world. Just look for a moment at our world and see how our neighbors and our co-workers, how they can sacrifice their lives to live for their gods. Those parents who take their children to hockey events and, and, and different sort of camps and, and spend their entire lives and all of their money making sure that their son or their daughter has a chance at a professional hockey career, the likelihood of which is almost zero. Or think of those parents who, who work diligently from the very first day of their children's lives to ensure that they have every advantage, every educational opportunity. They send them to all of the various things that can be sent so that their education can be, can be wonderful. They can get into an Ivy League school. They can get a diploma that has the right name on it. And they can be set for life. Think about how the world worships its gods, sacrificing everything in service to them, and they have no guarantee. Indeed, they're more likely to fail than succeed. But we have every guarantee. For we have the King of kings and Lord of lords who has made us to be more than conquerors. We are victors in Jesus Christ, death itself having been defeated. Shouldn't that give us boldness? Shouldn't that give us courage? Shouldn't that give us comfort? Confidence and comfort in this fallen world. Standing out before the world and saying, but no, I declare Jesus Christ as Lord here in my office, here in my business, here on my job site. Here Jesus Christ is King. Here we can be like the Browning Corporation that makes knives and guns and all the rest. Who leave the 
the chairman's seat in their board meetings unoccupied, for there they say Jesus Christ reigns. He is the king of this company, and he is the one we serve. Shouldn't we be bold? in our witness to the world, calling all who do not know this King to repent and believe because He is Lord. Don't you see? The world around us is pressing us to diminish, to deny the claim of God on all of our lives and to say to us, your God is small. Sit in your little private space. Sit in your churches and fine. Do whatever rituals you want. But leave your God out from public space. Leave your God out from the witness of the world for He has no place here. And yet here we in this passage meet a God who brings the lords of the Philistines to their knees. Who makes cows function contrary to their nation. Or their nature rather. And who returns to His people that they may be blessed by His presence. This is our God. This is who comes to us today in worship. And this is who we ought to worship. We ought to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ, our Master. And that ought to find expression in the way that we live our lives. Because after the initial excitement and the worship of of God and His return on that stone in Joshua's field, that burnt offering of praise to the Lord for His faithfulness, There comes some grief and sorrow. For in verse 19 we read, He struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. There is in some copies of the Hebrew Bible a suggestion that it wasn't 70 men. It may have been 50,070 men. But it is probably 70. It is probably more like our Bibles have it. And that's enough, isn't it? Seventy men suddenly struck down. In this moment of great joy, in this return of the King, in this opportunity of God's grace and goodness upon His church, declaring His preference for them, He has defeated their enemies. He has come before them in order to be a blessing among them. And now there's death. Now there's funerals. Now there's darkness. What did these people do wrong? Some translations translate verse 19 to say because they looked in the ark of the Lord. And that gives a sense maybe then of impropriety. That they curiously came to this box as it sat upon the card and they lifted its lid to see that bud of Aaron, that budded staff of Aaron, the tablets of the law, the jar of of, of, uh, manna. They wanted to see what was inside of this thing. And if that's the case, then they took a step too far and and they obviously did something disrespectful. They, They did what God said may not be done. They were not priests. They were not allowed to do this. They treated God as an unholy thing. That's why Bibles translate the text that way because it helps us understand why these 70 people died. They died because they came before God in a manner inconsistent with His identity as God. But it's not entirely clear that that's exactly what the text means. Our Bibles do a good job. When it says, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. 
which just means they looked at it. They looked at the ark. Now you say, well, why would the Lord kill anyone for looking at it? He didn't kill the Philistines. They looked at it. Why would he kill 70 Israelites for having looked upon the ark of the Lord? Is it possible that the ark should have been covered as is normally the case? Numbers 4, verses 5 and 6 teach us that the ark was to be covered. Is it possible that the, un, that the fact that it wasn't covered was the reason, again, God saying to his people, you need to follow my will, you need to obey my laws? Is it possible that these men who looked upon the ark are a unique group of men within the company of the Israelites? Maybe they were men who were unmoved, unexcited, unconcerned about the return of Jesus or a return of the ark. Maybe they looked upon it in a derisive way. They didn't celebrate God's return. Was the hardness of their hearts towards the Lord the issue? Had they not learned the lesson of the past seven months? In the end, it's hard to know. It's hard to understand exactly what it was that caused the Lord to strike out in anger on these 70 men. Except to know this. We know they did something wrong. What exactly, we don't know. But we know that they failed to honor God and to acknowledge His holiness among them. They didn't revere God as God. They didn't worship Him as the Sovereign. They didn't acknowledge Him as their Lord. And because as God's covenant people, they were in a relationship with God, having been taught the things of the Lord, and knowing how it was that they were to worship God, they suffered the covenant curse of their rejection. The holiness of God is a serious business. And it's not that the holiness of God is His willingness to destroy us as though God is this cruel God who looks for people to put down in His wrath. The Lord is not being cruel, certainly not in this event, any more than the sun is cruel when it dispels the darkness at dawn. Or an antibiotic is cruel when it defeats that disease in our body. Or that the allied armies were cruel when they liberated occupied Europe. The Lord had revealed to His people in the tabernacle that He was a holy God who could not be approached by sinners lest they be destroyed. And He had put in place all of those various layers so that they could have access to His grace, so that they could drink deeply of His love and not be consumed for the sake of their sin. He had shown them that they needed a mediator, that they needed a priest to stand between them. He showed them that they needed to come in humble devotion and penitence before Him. The Lord had revealed this all in those laws about sacrifices, teaching them the safe way for sinners to come to church and be blessed, not cursed. Because the Lord is holy, holy, holy. And who He is does not change just because we chose to become sinners. We may not like that God is holy, holy, holy. We may think that worship should be far more accommodating to our expectations and desires. We may say, well, God should be nice. He should just be happy we showed up. But then we have a problem, not with who God is, or rather not with what God does, but rather with who God is. Because God is the holy God. 
whether you like it or not, whether you want to change it or not, He is holy, and His holiness will be satisfied. It was satisfied upon the Philistines, and it was satisfied upon the Israelites, because the Israelites did the exact same things the Lord of the Philistines did too. In verse 2, we read, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what we shall send it to its place. And then in verse 20, the men of Beth Shemesh say, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? They said, get rid of this ark. It's too much for us. It's too much. And so they send this ark away to Kiriath-Jerim, to the house of Abinadab, and they consecrate Eliezer as priest. It is reasonable, by the way, to assume that Shiloh, which is where Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas had been ministering, had been defeated uh, as a result of that battle that was lost when the ark went into uh, captivity, and that Shiloh was defeated. Psalm 78 verse 60 seems to imply as much. And if that's the case, then the tabernacle was no longer in existence. There was no high priest that could minister before the Lord. There was no real place that you could send the ark that was a local, central place. There was no tabernacle, no temple. And it's also reasonable to assume that Eliezer was a priest, that they sent the ark to the right place because there was one who was given charge by God to minister over his ark. And the reason we believe that is because Eliezer's name is a priestly name. And yet all of this turns this moment of victory into sorrow. It takes this moment of great celebration where the people of God ought to be rejoicing over God's defeat of their enemies and of His return to be a blessing to them. And it turns that moment into grief. And we need to ask ourselves, why? Why would the Lord do that? And there are some very obvious lessons I think we can take from this, that we can learn from this also in the context of our own situation of life. All of us need to take God seriously. All of us need to recognize God's holiness is a a big thing. That is, having a healthy fear of the wrath of God, a reasonable fear, recognizing that He is holy, 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 and that we are sinners, and that our fallenness is terrible in His sight, and that we need grace, we need to be covered in the cloth of righteousness, all of that is a good thing. A healthy fear, a reasonable fear, recognizing God's holiness and our fallenness, all of that is good. It humbles us, and it focuses our attention on the glory of God. And we need to learn to speak that word into our hearts. We need to remind ourselves that the God whom we worship is this God. Maybe some of us have read or are reading even C.S. Lewis's books on Narnia. We always read those with our children when they were young. And every so often you will meet in those stories when you meet Aslan the lion, who is quite a character, very gentle and tender, very sacrificial, dying upon that stone table in his time. But he's also a god or a lion that is terrifying. There are times when he has to say to Lucy or to Susan or to whoever, I am not a tame lion. Our God is not a tame God that you can just do whatever you want with and expect that He will be okay with it. 
We need to learn that we need to speak that word to our hearts. We need to speak it when we come to church on Sunday. Here we come into the very presence of God. Have you come to this place ready? Have you come not just physically ready? I do think that it's important for us to think about what we wear when we come to church. Not because what we wear is so vitally important, but because it is an expression of what lives in our heart. Are we coming to church to meet with the great King? Are we coming to church because we know we need His grace? Are we coming to church because we want to worship at His footstool? Are we coming to church not because our hearts are hard and we're doing it to satisfy mom and dad and we're doing it because it's the thing we have to do, but because we know just how much we need this King? And not just on Sundays. Think of our own devotional life. Think of our walk with the Lord during the week. Do we do our devotions in a routine sort of way, in a rote sort of way? Are we just trying to make God happy? Saying, okay, I did it, God. That's enough, right? You wanted me to read a chapter of the Bible, so I read it. Now, I can't remember anything about it, and that's neither here nor there, but you're happy with me, right? No, no, we need to do our devotions. We need to relate to God in prayer precisely because we know He is holy, holy, holy and we desire to live before Him and we need to humble ourselves and cry out to Him for mercy. There are some obvious ways in which we need to learn the lesson of our text this morning and we need to remind ourselves what it means to be in fellowship with this great and glorious God. And that needs to move our hearts to joy when we consider what it means that Jesus Christ is indeed our King. It needs to move our hearts. Precisely because what Jesus Christ has done is so remarkable, so amazing, and so wonderful. So don't misunderstand. The lessons that we need to learn from this text are lessons that can have practical consequences in the way that we worship, in the way that we relate to one another, in the way that we relate to God. But this text is less about our doing better and more about reminding us of how much we need the gracious, merciful, forgiving God in Jesus Christ. God will forever be holy. And in this life, until we are called into eternity, we will forever be in our sin. Which means that we daily need the wonderful, unbelievable mercy and grace of God to wash us clean. We need His Son's blood to cover us. We need His Spirit's presence to move us. We need to see how God, precisely because of this passage, because this is who God is, and because this is who God is, His church would be destroyed were it not for His grace. We need to see how this passage teaches us the need of a King. A king who can stand between us and God and so bear the wrath of God against our sins. And a king who can lead us into the way of righteousness. A king who can teach us how to worship this God, how to love this God, how to serve this God. Which is, of course, indeed what this little section, this little parentheses in the book of Samuel is all about. We're about to see the coming of a king. In chapter 7, chapter 8, it'll begin in earnest. The coming of a king. Saul will be anointed. Chapter 9. And in time, David will come. And you can imagine why at some point, especially given the way the kingship of Israel went, people might say to themselves, why do we need this king? He's not my king. And people in the church can say it too. 
People in the church can say, you know what, I can live my life the way I want. I, I can walk in the way that I want to walk. But here's a lesson for why we need a king. Here is the explanation for why we need a king. We need a king because we are unable to stand before so holy a God. We need a king who can lead us in the way of righteousness. And we need this king in our lives today. What kind of king do we need? Do we need a king who's going to make us rich? Do we need a king who's going to make us happy? Do we need a king who is going to make us comfortable in life? No, we need a king. We need a king who will lead us in the way of service to our God. The privilege of being the people of God is great. The blessing of belonging to the company of the redeemed is beyond measure. That we must always and forever acknowledge the righteousness and holiness of our God, knowing that He is not like the gods of this world. He is to, to be handled with respect and dignity, not with carelessness and casualness. When we worship, we are to worship in reverence and in awe. But we are to worship in joy. We are to worship in wonder and in thanksgiving for He has given us the King we need. Without the King, this would be us. We would be those 70 men who died. For who can stand before the Lord this God? This holy God. But in Jesus Christ, we find ourselves secure. We find ourselves saved. We need to give our lives to that. We need to rejoice in that. Those of us who do not know Jesus Christ in this way need to today, need to today recognize that God is holy, holy, holy and His judgment falls upon sinners. Find your rest in Jesus Christ. And those of us who have known Jesus Christ long, who have been in the faith and rooted in Jesus Christ, we need to shake off the stupor. We need to shake out the cobwebs we need to stop listening to the world when it tells us that Jesus is a small God. Oh no, He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And the church needs to act like it so that many may know that He reigns and that He is worshipped and that He redeems all who trust in Him. Let's ask the Lord for the grace of that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, it is true that we need to be reminded of just how great and glorious You are as our God. That You are not a God like the nations. That You are King of kings and Lord of lords. Heavenly God and Father, we pray that for the sake of Jesus Christ, You would impress that so upon our hearts that in this coming week, we would not hide that light under a bushel, but that we would be that city upon a hill. That the world would know that there is a God in Israel and that they would join with us in the worship of Your name. Or that they would be angry with us. That they would resist us. That they would say, there is a people who worship this God. But let them know, O heavenly God and Father, either in their submission or in their opposition, that we love and serve You. And that You are our King and Lord through Jesus Christ who died on the cross. Indeed, that He is the One who rules all heaven and earth at Your right hand. What a gift is ours, O heavenly God and Father. What a grace is ours to know that though we, like those 70 men of old who died, do not deserve Your grace to live, yet we have been given it in Jesus Christ. So bless us, heavenly God and Father, with a sense of wonder and joy 
And may we renew our trust in You today and go from this place eager to live in submission to King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.